the other thing that um, Carly and United Way of Central Ohio have advocated for with great success would be source of income ordinances or SOI. In September of 2020 was the first Central Ohio community to pass that ordinance and it simply states that landlords must include all legal sources of income to qualify that person for their housing. What do I mean by that? So social security, disability, veterans benefit, retirement, retirement, child support, um, where previously a landlord would only look at your earned income, say on a W-2, this is looking at those government supports. After Bexley showed leadership by uh, passing that ordinance, Columbus, Whitehall, Worthington, Westerville, and Gahanna have all followed suit. If you live, listeners, in Dublin or Arlington or Grandview, Hilliard, Grove City, I would encourage you to go to your city council uh, members and advocate and say, can we follow the leadership of Westerville and Whitehall and Worthington and Columbus? It might be the fastest way to get to a housing justice platform. We are looking forward our way from Studio C in the 511 Studios in the Brewery District. That's just south of downtown Columbus, Ohio. Hi, this is Brett. Uh, Regardless of which part of the country you live in, housing issues continue to crowd our news. Whether it's affordable housing that's not available or renters are looking to buy or mortgage rates that are soaring, the issues continue to grow and create greater stress to working individuals and families. Today, we have two local and well-respected experts to discuss the critical housing situation in Central Ohio. We welcome Carly Booz, Executive Director at Affordable Housing Alliance of Central Ohio, and Michael Wilkos, Senior Vice President, Community Impact United Way of Central Ohio. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Wonderful. We are so glad to see both of you. I heard a housing presentation that Carly and Michael provided to the Central Ohio Area Agency on Aging earlier this year, I knew we needed to include them in on a podcast, providing both information as well as the resources that are available in our community. But first, before we really get started into the topic, let's hear more about Carly and Michael. And Carly, why don't you start our discussion? Tell us about yourself and your agency. Well, thank you for inviting me to be here. This is going to be a really fun talk, I think. Uh, We are the Affordable Housing Alliance of Central Ohio. Our work is to make sure that Central Ohio has the tools and the data and the research and importantly, the support that it needs to solve our housing challenges. So we look at that through a lot of different lens. We're focused on homelessness. We're focused on housing affordability for renters. We're focused on home ownership and making it available and accessible. What we are really looking at is having a healthy community where everybody is welcome and they all have a seat at the table. Wonderful. Michael. So at United Way of Central Ohio, we are celebrating our 100th anniversary this year. And since our founding, we have always been focused on providing supports for uh, vulnerable people within our community. We are a member of the Affordable Housing Alliance of Central Ohio and uh, support Carly and her work uh, 100%. But here in Central Ohio, we fund 92 nonprofits in Franklin County, and they are focused entirely in two buckets. One of those is basic needs, ensuring that people's basic needs are met. So hunger, housing, homelessness, uh, dealing with an emergency crisis. And the second would be uh, ensuring uh, students are on a pathway to academic success. So kindergarten readiness and high school uh, uh, completion. Those 92 agencies, which by the way, represent a 
collective workforce of 13,000 people that are working every day to provide those supports, uh, they are struggling in helping those families be stable in their housing. So we are critically invested in uh, uh, the supports that are needed to keep people stable in their housing because if families can't be stable in their housing, then kids can't be successful in schools and people can't participate in the economic prosperity of Central Ohio. And that is why this issue is very important to us. I've lived in this community for 35 years. I moved to Columbus to go to the Ohio State University to get degrees in urban geography and city and regional planning. And in that time, I have never seen a housing ecosystem that is more stressed than the one that we share today. You know, it for for so many, literally decades, we have been focused on homelessness. But I think until the pandemic, people didn't realize the issues of the housing affordability and availability. And now it's really at the forefront. So thank you both for coming and talking with us today. All right. Well, population growth in central Ohio has exploded over the past you know, 10 years. A 15.1% growth in Columbus outpaced other large cities that are comparable to us that are in the conversations like we have in Portland, Houston, and Nashville. Each year, Franklin County gains 16,000 more people. And, and we all look at it as a positive. We all want to grow. We hate to see that you know, the, the other C's go down, but our metro continues to grow. Now, Michael, can you tell us about the individuals who moved here? You know, who are they? What part of Columbus is now their home? And what impact did this have on those already living in that in those areas? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would agree with you. The growth of Central Ohio, it is very exciting. So I'll give some additional data to put this into perspective. Since 2010, Central Ohio has added 260,000 additional residents, while the rest of Ohio lost 20,000 people. Uh, the economic engine of the state is about a 25 mile radius from Broaden High. And once you leave that area, uh, it is a very different state than what we have in Central Ohio. So what are the contributing factors to that growth and why Central Ohio, uh, why are our growth numbers so high? There are three ways in which a metropolitan region can grow and Columbus is growing in all three of those ways. The first would be through natural increase. That's births minus deaths. We have a very young median age in Central Ohio relative to other Midwestern cities. So as an example, Cuyahoga County, Cleveland, which has the same total population as Franklin County, the median age in Franklin County is seven years younger than Cuyahoga, which means we just have a lot more of our residents in those childbearing years, which are having families and children. Mm -hmm. So that's half of our growth. 26% of our metropolitan growth is due to the in-migration of international folks moving to central Ohio. That is something that really was not part of our collective DNA until the 1990s, and that has continued to pick up. We have a very diverse uh, continent of origin in which those people are coming from. Columbus is considered an emerging market when it comes to international arrivals. If you think of New York and Miami and Los Angeles, which have long been destinations for new Americans coming to the United States, what you see in those highly developed uh, cities is a... Um, a continent of origin that is very diverse and almost equitably distributed. In an emerging market for new Americans, Columbus, Charlotte, Indianapolis, you tend to see international arrivals coming from a particular continent of origin. So in the case of Charlotte, that's mostly driven by um, Central and Latin America. In Central Ohio, we have this even distribution. 
people coming from Asia, they're coming from Central and Latin America, they're coming from Europe, they're coming from all over the world. Why is that? Well, we have the Ohio State University, which is very much a global institution. We also have a large number of companies that really kind of operate on a global stage. And you even look at an uh, organization like Honda, right, which is driving that growth. So let, let's go back. 50% of our growth is babies over deaths. 26% is due to the arrival of international. And then the smallest part of our growth, 24%, is the movement of American-born citizens moving from one part of the country to another, and they're choosing Columbus. But most of that growth of American-born in migration is coming specifically from within Ohio. And the top destinations of American-born in migration are, in order, Cleveland, Dayton, Akron, Detroit, Youngstown, right? So we are polling people from nearby cities where those cities aren't doing as well economically. And what are the drivers of mobility patterns? People are seeking either economic opportunity or they're seeking education. And Columbus is a destination because we are creating jobs and we are an education center. And oh, by the way, where does Central Ohio lose people to? If we're polling people from Cleveland, Akron, uh, Detroit and Youngstown. Our top destinations where we lose people to are Phoenix, Dallas, Houston, Charlotte, and Atlanta. So in many ways, Columbus is on this ladder for people up and out of Ohio. You tend to move to Columbus from a nearby city, and when you leave Columbus, you're leaving Ohio and you're leaving the Midwest. So why is Columbus growing at 15%? Because we're growing through natural increase, we're growing through the in-migration of international, and we are growing through domestic in-migration, and that's why our population is so significantly on that upward trajectory, and we are expected to continue to see positive population growth in all three of those buckets. So Northeast Ohio would really like to have I-71 under construction all the time. To right. slow things down. <laughs> well, you know, what's really, what's fascinating about that, Brett, is um, the Columbus and Cleveland relationship is twice as strong as the Columbus to Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. Meaning that um, when I rattled off that list of in-migration from local, you'll notice that Cincinnati was yeah. not one of those places. So the number of people that moved to Columbus from uh, Cleveland, that flow is twice as high as the flow from Cincinnati. And that's because the Cincinnati metropolitan economy is just has consistently been doing better than Cleveland's. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and, and to me, comparing Columbus to Cincinnati, it, it, they're two different cities. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I don't mean Columbus and Cleveland are similar, but it's just, it, it's, it's a different city. They are. All it's three of just, them are different. But they are. But it's just, you know, you go there and it's just, it's, it's the southern part of Ohio. You know, it, it, it's you have to know what you're doing driving in there in Cincinnati. It's well, just like, a different feel of a city. But the, the other thing, too, is that Cleveland is the northeast. You, you have right. to go quite a ways to get to another large city. Yeah. Cincinnati is really right up there with Lexington and Louisville. And they, they have mm. their own little sort of hub together mm. much closer. I can remember in my 30 years at Ohio State – Way back when, the university was very concerned, the city of Columbus was very concerned with the brain drain. Mm. So mm. I think at that point in time, education did a huge move towards making sure there were reasons for the educated graduates to stay. Mm. And so they, the university became very much a part of workforce development. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 
closer tie. Well, as I was uh, sitting here listening to Brad, I was reminded that one of the things that I hear people say from Cincinnati is one of the questions people always ask another person is, what high school did you go to? Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. so much of the conversation in Cincinnati is where in the Cincinnati region are you from? Where yep. in Columbus, mm-hmm. nobody ever asks what high school you went to because there's this assumption that you probably didn't grow up in Metro Columbus. Yeah. You're probably from somewhere That's a else. really good point. That's a really good point. I was going to say, as a native Columbusite, we all talk about high schools. Because then we're really looking at what neighborhood did you grow up? I went to Catholic school, so I grew up in a different neighborhood than where my school was located. So our our, um, kids that we grew up with were not just those that we went to school with. It, we were because we grew up with kids from the public schools in our neighborhood. So I will, it's a different conversation. I will often ask when I'm giving uh, presentations about Columbus, whether I'm in a room of, um, you know, a corporation that's raising money for United Way or it's one of our funded partners where I'm speaking to maybe staff or their board or even a civic like a Rotary or Kiwanis, right? I will always ask by a show of hands, uh, raise your hand if you grew up as a kid in Franklin or one of the adjacent counties. Normally, a third of the hands will mm-hmm. go up. And then I'll say, how many of you grew up somewhere else in the state of Ohio outside Columbus Metro? There goes another one third of the hands. And then it's who grew up somewhere in the United States outside of Ohio, and that's the remainder or your international. But no matter where I am, I usually never see more than one third of the hands go up, which is you grew up here in Columbus. And, and- Right now, I'm only one fourth. Yeah, right. Our right. Table right. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty typical. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Mm. So, Carly, um, we know that socioeconomic status, such as education levels, income, greatly affect a family's ability to find housing. Give us a picture of the families who are at risk in Central Ohio, and what factors are intensifying those housing issues. Sure. Uh, I would start, though, by saying that I think everybody who lives in central Ohio is being affected by our housing shortage and the housing challenge that we're facing. It could be somebody who wakes up and struggles to pay rent or to pay mortgage. It could be somebody who has a friend or a family member that they love very much who is in that situation. Even if you are sitting at home listening to this and you feel secure, we are becoming very conscious of the fact that our job opportunities are going to be more limited our ability to prosper and find new opportunities can become more limited. Our ability to gain the kind of education and lifestyle for our children that we expect. All of those things are very interdependent with the amount and availability and affordability of our housing. One of the things I think I even learned from you, Carly, was this, um, you know, people talk about affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And when you hear that word affordable housing, it conjures up a mental model for people that sometime is about housing that isn't well-maintained or is going to bring down my property values. But what I've heard you say, Carly, is it's no longer a conversation around affordable housing. It's really about housing affordability. And housing affordability is affecting every single person because home values and rents have consistently been uh, increasing at a faster rate than people's incomes every single year for a long time now, which is causing a housing vulnerability for people who just a few years ago would have never thought they could uh, feel that financial Mm -hmm. pinch around their housing and having to make decisions about where to spend that money. And if you don't spend that money on your housing, you become unstable very quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. And and on top of just the cost of the house itself, now with insurance 
taxes going up, everything, mm-hmm. it, it's become they're all becoming much more vulnerable in the, in those issues. So. Is, is there a better phrase to use than affordable housing? Are we are we saying that wrong? No, or, I don't think or, so. You know, because I, I I agree when you say it, we've grown up with that affordable housing as in okay subsidized, you know, maybe less than a thousand square feet. It's somewhere to live versus being able to afford a home mm-hmm. is a different, totally different conversation. I think they bleed together, though. Okay. So when we talk okay. about affordable housing, it's it's important to define the terms, right? right? But I think that, well, I know for the Alliance, the way that we think about it, a home is affordable if it's no more than 30% of your income, whatever that is, okay. right? So my income is going to look different than a barista. That's going to look different than an airline pilot. But as long as your housing is within 30% of whatever that wage is, you're going to be in a safe, sustainable spot. So to flip that, when you're driving down the street, every single house you pass is affordable housing. Every single one of the 11 or so million people who live in the state of Ohio, everybody is in affordable housing. The question becomes, who is that house affordable for? And do we have the right makeup that matches our population and what their needs are? Right. But I can drill down, too, and we can talk about some of the numbers around it, because while that's true and everybody is feeling this pinch one way or another, some are definitely feeling it more. Yeah. Well, in the opening, Brett, when you talked about Central Ohio's growth, I failed to mention one additional perspective. And when you said Franklin County adds 16,000 additional residents every year, however, we've only been building housing for 10,500 people every year. So every I've seen yeah. some number like that, and I can remember it was way out of proportion. <laughs> so you what know, that means, like, so think about this, every yeah. year for a decade, that's 5,500 people that we added in the county that nobody built a house for. And so that competition was building and building and building. When the housing pressures accelerated across the United States during COVID, that happened here. But the other part of that backstory was this chronic underbuilding where every single year that housing competition was getting more and more and more robust. And then during COVID, it really kind of accelerated. What that means is we are short tens of thousands of housing units. And one of the reasons why home values and rents here have jumped so much more than the average is because of those growth pressures in relation to how much supply the market has added. The other interesting thing is we had this huge reduction in vacant and abandoned housing in Franklin County over the last 10 years. And I'm going to give three specific examples because I have just memorized these over conversations (laughs) I have with lots of people. So let's look at Northland, which is a huge part of the city of Columbus. That neighborhood over the last 10 years added 13,700 additional residents, but only added 484 housing units. So think about that another way. Northland added the entire equivalency of the city of Bexley, but they essentially only added the size of one apartment complex. 484 housing units, but they added Mm 13,700 people. How does that happen? Two things. One, Northland had a huge reduction in vacant and abandoned housing. In 2010, there were 4,000 housing units in Northland sitting empty. By 2020, that had shrunk by half. And then the number of people living per unit jumped significantly in Northland. If housing costs are jumping faster than your income, 
one way to compensate for that is to have more people living in that unit who can contribute financially to the housing cost. Two more quick geographic examples in this. Linden is now a growing neighborhood. Of the 12 census tracts in North and South Linden, 11 of the 12 had population growth. But here's what's really concerning about Linden, and I've never seen this in the decades of studying housing and demographics and census data for Columbus. Linden lost 4% of all of its housing, but grew by 7.3% in population. They lost 4% of their housing, but the population of the neighborhood jumped by 2,600. That's more people per unit. And the census now has confirmed for people like Carly and I, mm -hmm. and for the 92 nonprofits that United Way funds, anecdotally, what have people been telling Carly and I for years? Oh, as people get displaced, as people get evicted, they're moving in with friends and family. And where are people living doubled up? Not in Clintonville and German Village in Dublin. They're living doubled up in neighborhoods that struggle, right? Mm -hmm. In places like Linden and Northland. Linden and Northland added 17,000 additional residents, and there was no visual indication of that growth. You couldn't drive through Linden and Northland mm -hmm. and see housing under construction. Yeah. My last example is Reynoldsburg. Mayor Begany in Reynoldsburg, and Reynoldsburg is where Carly lives, and there's just amazing stuff going on in Reynoldsburg. Um, in the Franklin County portion of Reynoldsburg, they added just 562 housing units, but the population jumped by 4,900 additional residents in the Franklin County portion of Reynoldsburg. So whether it's Northland or Linden or Reynoldsburg, what's important about this conversation is Yes, we can see growth when we drive down Polaris Parkway and South Old State Street and you go from farms to new developments. You can see it on West Broad Street and North 4th Street and Long Street when vacant lots are sprouting four and five and six story buildings. But there also can be significant growth in neighborhoods where you can't physically see it. The point of that long monologue is there is growth all over the metropolitan region, but now so many of these neighborhoods have essentially filled up and that inventory of vacant and abandoned housing has been used. There are okay. 9,000 less vacant housing units in this community than 10 years ago. So we're now starting this new period of growth further behind because we no longer have those existing housing units sitting vacant that can get repurposed. And that's why we really need to increase production of housing in this region moving forward. And this is a skill set that Carly is better equipped than I. My, Michael, let me clarify something. When you're saying we lost 9,000 vacant units, I'm thinking a vacant unit is probably something pretty derelict and nobody should be living in it anyway. Are you saying that they're gone or yeah. that somebody's living in them? Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. And uh, I'll um, answer it this way. In the case of Linden, there are 1,100 less vacant housing units than 10 years ago. 400 of those were demolished because they were beyond the point of probably mm -hmm. economic salvation and they needed to come down. The other 700 were uh, existing housing units that were vacant. That means they could have just been sitting empty or could have been boarded up. And those 700 were renovated and brought back online. So when I say those 9,000 units of vacant housing disappeared, what I mean is they're now occupied, right? They're either got demolished, which honestly, 
we didn't have a lot of demolition across this no. county in the mm-hmm. last 10 years. We're not like Cleveland and Toledo and Youngstown, which have been sitting on large inventory of housing that has been sitting empty for a long period of time. And in the case of Northland, one of the examples I love showing, and you know, all you have to do to be an effective researcher anymore is go to Google Street View and click on the panes <laughs> for different years, right? And you could see in 2011, there were entire apartment complexes on Northtown Boulevard near Tamarack Circle in Northland, where the developer or the owner of that property would just you know, board up the windows and walk away. If the housing market collapsed in 2006, 2007, Northland at that time was a weak market. A developer would just you know, sit on that real estate. Well, 10 years later, go back to Google Street View, that entire apartment complex is back online. That was paint and carpet, right? Right. That wasn't, we're not talking about 3,000 and 4,000 square foot turn of the century homes that might require a huge amount of investment to bring Mm -hmm. back online, Mm -hmm. like you might have on Bryden Road or East Broad Street from years back. Um, So the housing situation in Central Ohio is much, much different than the rest of the state. The point would be everybody in Central Ohio is growing. And my last example would be after 50 years of population loss, Whitehall's population jumped by 11%, 11% increase. And it's not because Whitehall was building a lot of housing, but it was really uh, maybe people who moved into that housing that were senior citizens who um, needed to move into more appropriate housing for where they were in their life cycle, who no longer wanted to be in that single family home that they've been in for Mm -hmm. decades. As they've transitioned out of that home, who is likely to have purchased that home after them is a new American family with multiple school-aged children. And that's what's driving the growth in Whitehall as a demographic shift. Right. So Brett and I had great relationships with the folks in Whitehall and have for years been the rah-rah part of talking to folks about this is a great place to live. It's a great neighborhood. They're improving the schools. Go in there, buy a house for literally nothing and rehab it, and you've got a wonderful starter home. A lot of those types of neighborhoods were in Northland. I grew up in Linden, Mm. went to school in Northland. Lots of little tiny pockets of fast building that happened in Northland right after the World War II, Korean War time, people were coming back needing those little tiny box houses. Um, One of the things that I've noted, and it's more personal, known family and friends, is that that Northland community had a very much older population, and they hung on to those little houses. They lived there till they died. Is Has that been an issue or is it just that's just too small of a number to to think more about it? It, it, it when you've got a neighborhood just like Whitehall did older folks were either moved or passed Na- Northland really is the same thing is going on yeah well we think about housing as a life cycle right mm-hmm. you don't start off wanting the same thing you're going to want in midlife and that's not going to be the same thing you're going to want as you get older and you have different mobility needs we are seeing definitely consumer trends towards smaller homes. You think back to the 90s, it was country chic. It was giant homes on massive yes. lots. Many ma- many mansions. Yep, big yep. mansions. We're not seeing younger people who want that. And I think part of that is they're looking to the Cape Cods and to these cute homes that are very sustainable, very affordable. And they're saying, you know what? I want that. I don't want to spend all of my money mm-hmm. on a mortgage payment that goes to massive square footage I never see. And I have to clean all weekend. 
I just want something small and then I can use all that residual income to go on trips or to, right. you know, hang out with my kids and have a really enjoyable weekend. So you're definitely seeing these changes and what people want as far as their housing is. We're starting to tip into a discussion, though, of what the barriers are to getting us to housing sufficiency and why we are having so many challenges in meeting not just these affordability needs, but giving our residents the kind of housing that they want. And one of those big walls we got to jump over is land use and zoning laws that were written in the 1950s for a population who doesn't look like us, who doesn't want the same thing as us. Um, and it, it's holding us back in a lot of ways. And that's not just the city of Columbus. It is throughout the region. It is throughout the country. Right. You know, there is this um, preference we've created um, over the, since the end of World War II, where the single family detached home is somehow this iconic status symbol that we are all supposed mm -hmm. to want to desire and want. And we've created this mental model of what we think the quintessential American home should look like. But that's really for uh, a certain part of the population during a certain period of time, right? There's such a um, negative perception that has been created about renters. Uh, and in this community, 45% of Franklin County households are renters. Wow, I didn't realize yep. it was that high. So uh, in the state of Ohio, it is 66% uh, of Ohio are homeowners and 33% are renters. In Franklin County, it's 55 to 45. Uh, we're a younger community, uh, housing prices here are higher. But if you think about it, um, there is a like a 20 to 25 year time period of your life where that single family home with three or four bedrooms is the right housing typology for you. When you're young and single, you're in apartments. If you are uh, delaying creation of a family, you don't need family housing. You're in that uh, single family, three and four bedroom home for this period of time. And then you become an empty nester. Let's look at Dublin. Dublin uh, is a community that went from 3,800 people to 50,000 in 30 years. It has a lot of housing that is very similar in price point and square footage. Mm -hmm. But now as Dublin has aged, you have a lot of empty nesters who love Dublin, but they no longer want that 3,500 square foot house in Muirfield Village. They have disposable income. The kids are gone. They want to travel. They don't want to be uh, dealing with yard work. So what is Bridge Park? Right. Bridge Park in Dublin is really providing a, a retirement home, you're saying. Well, <laughs> but there's actually I'm kidding. It I'm is, kidding. Bridge it is Park. similar. But <laughs> well, here's what I'll Mr. say. Mr. Hoing, I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, lo I love Bridge Park. Right. But if you think about it this way, if you are young and single and you're uh, having yet started a family, mm -hmm. what's driving your housing and neighborhood choice? lifestyle sure it is all of these what's yeah. called five over ones right five levels of stick build construction over a concrete podium that's on high street and west broad and long street that's lifestyle what is bridge park what is kingsdale that's convenience mm -hmm. so arlington and dublin are real and and hilliard right which is now also looking yeah. at wanting to do a mixed use downtown and you know worthington is struggling with uh what they want to do with the redevelopment of the methodist property in high street that's about convenience how do we keep right how does dublin attract young single people who are looking for lifestyle well Young single people don't want to be in Muirfield Village or Tartan Fields. They want to walk out their door and they want to have restaurants and entertainment. Bars. Bars. Walk yes. over this cool bridge over a river. Right. They yeah, want yeah. to go to the North Market, you know, Bridge Park. Mm -hmm. um, 
that is lifestyle, but it's also convenience. So those young single professionals that want lifestyle, they're attracted to Bridge Park, and those empty nesters that have that home in uh, Muirfield also want to be in Bridge Park, and I give Dublin a lot of credit, Mm -hmm. and I give uh, Arlington a lot of credit. What Arlington is doing at Kingsdale, you've got a seven-story apartment building, you've got Mm -hmm. a senior building going up there, you've got a rec center, all right in the parking lot of a giant eagle, it's a beautiful thing. And now what is Whitehall doing? Redeveloping all mm-hmm. that property at Broad and Hamilton to give a different type of housing typology that is focused on lifestyle and convenience, which is now providing these housing bookends and moving away from this nostalgic, emotional manipulation that we should all be living in four bedroom, single right. family detached homes. My- but I mean, let me say too, it's not just single uh, wage earning, no children households, they might be gravitating towards more apartment buildings. But you look at the two hottest housing markets in the entire country. Right now, today, it is Gahanna. In the entire right. country, it is Gahanna. And what are they doing? They're investing in their downtown. They're investing in Creekside. They're putting multifamily mm-hmm. density in there. They're putting shops. They're putting entertainment venues. And what's happening to the single family homes? Values going through the roof because everybody wants to be there. Two years ago, it was Reynoldsburg doing the exact same thing with old Reynoldsburg, putting in more apartments, putting in more housing, cultivating new small businesses. And what happened? The single family homes all around this, it got more and more popular. Hmm. This this sort of answers a question about the complex where I live. I'm in a condominium complex, standalone um, units that are, I, I mean, mine is 2,000 square feet. It's not a small condo by any stretch. Uh, Two-car attached garage. Just enough uh, uh, of the uh, flower beds to that I can deal with. <laughs> Poor Michael. That's funny. Yeah, you know, just only what I want to do. Um, they they were built early two thousand, and at that point in time, when the whole Players Parkway stuff was sort of grinding to a halt, there were bits and pieces of land where people wanted single family homes out of their. Mick Mansion into smaller but still enough space for a couple and their grandchildren, no kids. So my complex is not a senior complex, but the average age is probably 50. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are not continued around the region because it's even though um, it's smaller, there's still a lot of land involved. It's expensive mm-hmm. because there's there's more land than what you would get in a um, – multi-level condominium building but you know we all wanted to sell our houses and and still have our own property and equity so Mm -hmm. that's and so i just keep wondering why isn't why aren't other people doing this well there's not enough land to do it Mm -hmm. that where you could do it uh and break even even yeah and this gets us right back into that affordability piece right 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 now in franklin county just franklin county we have fifty-four thousand families who are paying more than half their income towards housing. A big part of that is we don't have enough housing to go around. It's just supply and demand fundamentals. But that's 54,000 of our neighbors who are taking one out of every two paychecks and giving it to a mortgage company or to a landlord. And that leaves very, very little left over for food, for medication. We see a lot of seniors in this position who mm-hmm. begin rationing their medication and cutting prescriptions in half just to get through to the end of the month. If you blow that out and you don't look at just Franklin County, but you look at our whole region, it's 83,000 households who are doing that every single month. That's that's a real tipping point that we need to look at. 
if you go further down the economic ladder and you're not just looking at kind of the region as a whole, but just households who are earning minimum wage, right? Full-time, 40-hour-a-week employees, but they're minimum wage earners. We only have one home for every three people who needs it in that range. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of our need every month, completely unmet. I, I think they, there was a, a number that was thrown around there for a while that if you had a, a minimum wage earner, they literally would have to have two and a half jobs to pay for housing. Mm-hmm. And worse than that, if they want to buy just the median home today, the average home that's up for sale, guess how many jobs they'd have to work? Six. Six full-time jobs. They would have to create three new days out of the week just so that they go to work 24 hours a day during those new days. Mm -hmm. It's completely unsustainable. Mm -hmm. So um, Governing Magazine a couple months ago uh, wrote a piece about what's happened to American housing markets uh, post-COVID. And it entirely focused on Columbus as being indicative of this trend. Uh, In 2013, in central Ohio, you needed... Uh, income needed to be, uh, you needed to earn 2.3 times your income to afford the median price of a home. Okay. Now it's 4.1 in just 10 years. Columbus now has the same income to housing ratio as Chicago. That's how quickly the Columbus's housing affordability advantage has disappeared. So we were talking a lot about Whitehall and changing demographics and population growth. As we all know, uh, uh, Auditor Stinziano has recently Mm -hmm. come out Mm -hmm. with the new three-year property uh, uh, value increases. Number one in Franklin County was Hamilton Local, followed by Whitehall. So Whitehall home values have jumped 68% in three years. Um, this is because so many people have been priced out of the Clintonvilles and Grandviews and Dublins and all these other markets. They are now going into parts of Franklin County where that demand was not just a few years ago. And that's putting incredible pressure on these lower to moderate income places who are seeing the biggest jumps. And I believe Franklinton has the fastest jump in property values within the city of Columbus. And uh, I don't want to be held accountable to this, but my memory tells me that in 36 months, the median price of a home in Franklinton jumped 100%. Mm-hmm. That is unsustainable. And when those tax bills come out, so as an example, when I estimated my my neighborhood had been jumping in value, which is Wyland Park, uh, in uh, previous appreciations. But this time, my house only jumped by 22%, where the average for Franklin County was up 42%. When I did the little estimated calculation, it looks like my annual property tax bill might drop by $500 a year. That's not going to be the experience for people in Hamilton Local and uh, Whitehall. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very concerned about what will happen to Uh, senior citizens and people who, you know, purchased homes in the Reynoldsburgs and Hamilton locals and White Halls, where now you're seeing huge jumps in those values. uh, And those folks are going to struggle with those bills. Right. And that's going to be broader than just Franklin County, too. If you look out closer to the Intel site, we're hearing really troubled things coming out of Johnstown, out of Grandview. You go to the other end of the the region and you're looking at Honda and Marysville. Mm -hmm. This is across the board. 
We did have a podcast with Auditor Stenziano and posted it a few weeks ago. So there is a lot of good information on his website. Um, so folks that are listening to this podcast, make sure you go back and listen to uh, to Mr. Stenziano's uh, podcast with us also because there is help. There are people to talk to. Uh, don't panic when you see those numbers. And um, we're still in 2023 and those numbers haven't been finalized. So what you're seeing are estimates. So um, um, don't panic yet. Yeah. Well, so. and this is a live issue. Right now, the number one topic that is being discussed at the state house is how to deal with property taxes. Right. So if it is something that you're feeling, this is a great time to call your representative and just share your story. Very say, here's good. what I want. Very good point. Right. And, uh, and we just, we did, they just passed to freeze um, property taxes for they, older adults, they right? Haven't, they haven't passed up, it. The, the, the topic just came up. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully by the time this podcast is posted, we'll have more information yeah, on that. But exactly. it could help. Um, those seniors at lower incomes. Right. It's not a low, low income, but it's a lower income that could, could yeah. be saved money on taxes. Right. So good. Mm-hmm. Last yeah. year, there were 20,000. I can't believe I, I've memorized these numbers. Last year, there were 20,897 evictions that were filed. That was a jump of 35%. But the number of what's called writs of restitution, or when a red tag gets put on a door because an action has been uh, decided, that went up 15%, or not as much as eviction filings. Lastly, we look at how many people were set out when someone from the sheriff's department showed up to put your belongings out on the street because you did not successfully navigate this housing situation. That was, well, one would be one too many, right? Because we don't want to see anybody in that situation. There were just 744 out of 20,900, the filings, 744 of those resulted in a set out. That was the lowest ratio of setouts as a function of filings we've seen in this community. Why? Because there has been a significant amount of money to help people pay their rent because of stimulus dollars. When the Biden administration just did a recent uh, additional authorization of eviction protection money, Franklin County and Columbus received $120 million, which is more than the state of California received because that was a performance-based contract and no other community in the country did a better job of getting those dollars in the hands of people who needed them to avoid that eviction than us. The nonprofit community here really rose to the occasion and she's not going to take credit for it but i give a lot of credit to the woman sitting to my left miss carly booze go carly running the affordable housing alliance right advocacy organization i'm going to turn it over to carly to talk about what those dollars will continue to be used for and this gift right i mean literally a gift that we have received in this community to really prevent a lot of people from losing their housing but at the not too distant future, those dollars will be gone and we will be back to a very difficult situation. But Carly led the creation of uh, Rentful and I want you to talk about all the great successes we've had as a community to help people be stable in their housing. Well, I appreciate that shout out. I do reject all the credit, but I agree that Central Ohio is a national leader in this space. And you remember the context when COVID hit, Everybody lost their job. Everybody went work from home. Tipped employees had no tips. 
hourly employees had no hours. It resulted in an immediate and significant eviction crisis. It was on our doorstep. Uh, there was no funding to be able to close that gap right at the beginning. So there was a whole litany of folks from not just in the state of Ohio, but throughout the country who said we need something equivalent to the Paycheck Protection Employee for employers. We need that for renters and for their landlords. I mean, right. importantly, this is about right. keeping properties safe and well-maintained, and that cash flow is essential to that. Uh, we are beyond lucky to have leadership in the state of Ohio. I think Sherrod Brown, I think locally Joyce Beatty, both were very active during this time in making sure that these resources were able to get into the people uh, who needed it. We here locally, it was a partnership between AHACO, but more significantly, the United Way, the Seymour Institute, and the city of Columbus and Franklin County created a one-stop shop. Information first, education first. Here is what is going to happen in our community. Here's how you navigate through it. If you are one of those households that is in emergency need, here is how you access those funds. Um, and that website is still alive. It is still very heavily trafficked. We're getting 20,000 visitors per month to that website. Carly, give us the website. Absolutely. It is rentful614.com. And it's hopeful, right? Rentful614.com. But let me contextualize that. We've got 20,000 people even today. We're sitting here in fall of 2023 after COVID has passed. 20,000 people coming to that website looking for help to pay their rent and to avoid an eviction. If instead of a digital queue that walked up to the website, it was a human line waiting for rental assistance, it would start at the Franklin County Courthouse doors in downtown Columbus, and it would snake around the corner, and it would go past the, the state house, and then it would go past Nationwide, and then it would go all the way down to the short north, and then it would go all the way through the university district, and then it would turn left, and it would stop at the stadium doors for Ohio Stadium. And that would be every single month. That need is so intense and i gotta circle it back to the fact that we don't have enough apartments that are affordable to people who need them and another way of thinking about that columbus as a metropolitan area had the eighth highest rent growth in the entire country the only cities ahead of us are those immediately ahead of us san jose and san diego and when you're comparing your housing options to california it is appropriate to get scared <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Well, and I want to because it, it just popped into my head listening to you, Carly, is back to this question about affordable housing and housing affordability. And I think everybody knows that, you know, in 2019 was the first time the city of Columbus had ever put affordable housing in a bond package, right? Bond package up to voters, you know, voter approval for bridges and sewers and sidewalks and streetlights. And in 2019, the city of Columbus put $50 million into that bond package to incubate affordable housing. That $50 million was uh, leveraged and uh, created $250 million in investment uh, and uh, uh, 1,300 units of affordable housing. And then in November, so just 10 months ago, uh, by a supermajority, Columbus voters approved $200 million in a bond package for affordable housing that's going to, you know, uh, build new housing, purchase housing, stabilize affordable housing. And if that same ratio is leveraged, that $200 million in bonds could potentially create a billion dollars in affordable housing. 
it is amazing what the city of Columbus and Columbus voters are choosing to do for our city. This is also aligned with zone in, which is the city of Columbus looking at the zoning code and saying, look, this is a 70 year old document. It's very much about the automobile. It's much about the favoritism towards single family, low density zoning. Uh, zoning codes written in the 1950s are just unfortunately also gonna be racist. Uh, and the city of Columbus is kind of tossing that out and redoing that. Uh, communities, though, like Worthington, have also been looking at that and uh, wanting to potentially also allow voters there to vote on affordable housing bond package for Worthington. And while the city of Columbus is doing great things, Columbus is only 45% of the metropolitan region. So everybody mm -hmm. kind of has to be in this together because at the end of the day, a, ho a home is where a job goes at night. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to bring in, you know, Google and Intel and Honda and Hyperion, the hydrogen cell company and a solar uh, a panel company in Pataskala and Nationwide Children's and Wexner Medical Center and all these things that are creating just tens of thousands of jobs. We have to have housing that aligns with the economic development progress. So affordable housing or housing affordability. I want to give you a couple specific examples of what we mean by affordable housing. A registered nurse who makes $75,000 a year and has two children as a single parent household, that person qualifies for an 80% area median income subsidized unit. A construction worker who is single and makes $50,000 a year would also qualify for an 80% AMI unit. A lot of people think to themselves, oh, you know, I don't really know, or I don't come in contact with, you know, people who are in need of truly very low, uh, uh, low income housing. Any one of us who has ever gone out to dinner just came into contact with someone who needs a 40% area median income subsidized unit or what we consider to be very affordable because the average salary for a cook in a restaurant is $29,000 a year. And why I share those examples is because every one of us every day comes into contact with someone who needs that. And I've heard people say the following, we entrust people to care for and raise our children. Think of child care workers mm -hmm. and how low that is. So it is odd to me intellectually and emotionally as I think, wow, I would trust you to care for and raise and educate my children, but I don't want to create housing in my neighborhood for you to be a neighbor. Right. And we have, unfortunately, and I've heard Robert Schottenstein, CEO of MI Homes, multiple times publicly say the following. He builds in 17 metropolitan markets across the country. And he said the suburban communities in Columbus are the most restrictive and exclusionary that he has seen across the United States. And one of the reasons why some of Columbus's suburban communities kind of get away with that is because the city of Columbus, which is 220 square miles, which is the exact same land area as the city of Chicago, the fact that the city of Columbus is in three counties, it is in 11 of the 16 school districts in Franklin County, that Columbus has really taken the moral and the business responsibility to house the region's uh, low-income mm -hmm. workers and residents. And as a citizen of Columbus, I say, 
that's not Columbus's responsibility. It's all of our responsibility to ensure that there is adequate housing in all of our communities so that if we want someone to cut our hair, to take care of our lawns, and to educate our children, that we should also want those people to live within our communities. And when you think about the housing ecosystem, what we've created in this country is this unfortunate situation where you can't live in the neighborhood that you love during all of your different lifespans as a single individual, as a young married couple, as a young family, as an established family, or as an empty nester. You literally have to leave your neighborhood multiple times. And I'll end with Union County. United Way of Central Ohio has a uh, uh, relationship now with United Way of Union County. If you look at Union County, very few people who live in Union County also work in Union County. And the kind of housing being built in Union County doesn't align with the population demographics. If you're a young single person, you've grown up in Union County and now you're in your 20s, there's nowhere for you to live in Union County. And if you're a senior citizen and you have now want to move away from that larger single family home, there's really no senior housing in Union County. So they're losing their young people and they're losing their seniors because they don't have that kind of housing. What I would like to see is a zoning code and a taxing infrastructure and an investment opportunity that says we want to create neighborhoods in all communities where people can stay in that community during those different life cycles. And that just doesn't exist presently. One of the things that we haven't really, we've, we've sort of touched on, not really focused on here, people think of housing and then everybody run into their old clunker car and driving 20 miles to a job. Housing, transportation, and employment really need to be discussed together. Individuals have to ask themselves, how far can I afford to drive to a new job? I can remember when the whole Rickenbacker stuff changed over and all of those mega warehouses went down there. And we suffered because people couldn't get down there to to work and there was no place to live down that way. Carly, how does that fit in? Yeah, transportation and housing are absolutely interdependent. There's no way you can look at one without looking at the other. I think one of the things that has me so excited about this region is the Link Us project, where we are looking at how our housing complements our workforce, complements our transit infrastructure. Um, It's something that's going to be a huge part of the conversation. And I want to underscore, too, that that isn't just something that workers are looking at. But that's something that employers are looking at, too. If you go to Site Selection Magazine, it's the the trade association Mm -hmm. for big, big employers who want to bring big, big jobs to a place. And you go to that magazine and you type in housing, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of posts. Because the consultants that are helping these big businesses figure out where to go and create a headquarters, one of the first things they look at is quality of life. And a big part of that is the cost of housing for those employees that they're going to bring. We did about two years ago a survey of employers, folks who work in housing, they've got that competency, but really they're big HR teams. They have lots of employees. And we said, how is today in central Ohio, how is our housing shortage affecting you as an employer? 80% of them said that their employees come to work less ready to work. They have lower productivity and they have lower morale because what happens at home absolutely follows you in the door at the job. And that same group, half of them said that they are seeing increased employee turnover and higher hiring costs and higher retention costs because the housing shortage is affecting their bottom line. 
And that's not at all surprising because if you get evicted on a Tuesday, very, very difficult to go into work on a Wednesday morning. Right. Right. So we know this is essential. And you can tell Michael and I love data. We're good numbers folks over here. We have only been creating one house for every two and a half jobs that we are creating in this community. To say that differently, for every 1,000 jobs we're bringing in, only 400 homes are being built. So unless you're expecting three full-time employees under every single roof, we are going to continue to have affordability issues and we're going to have quality issues until we get serious about building. And that is entirely a question about public support and commitment. We know Central Ohio is better positioned than absolutely anybody in the world to get ahead of it. I think Mayor Ginther, I think the Franklin County Commissioners, I think so many of our suburban partners and leaders truly understand the opportunity that's at our doorstep. What they need is for us to come and say, we got your back. We believe in this. We want this. And we support you as you are putting Central Ohio first. Wonderful. Good. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're going to have you back um, <laughs> for sure because, because – Way too well, much to talk well, about. And that's why we had you come to the table because you're the experts on this. I, you know, we could have dug forever for these numbers, and these numbers you guys coalesced very well in understanding where we're coming from. And I hopefully the listener doesn't go, well, the hands up. We, we, we've lost. We've lost. We can't. I think, like you mentioned, we're at, we're, at the, we're at the doorstep that we can make a difference. It's never, never, never too late, but we have to do something. And, and, and let's leave – the listener with some words of wisdom, if you would, as we do with all our guests. What do you want them to take away from this hour conversation we've had? Well, I want to do, uh, uh, I'll let Carla think about that kind of words of wisdom, but I want to plug two things that I want to encourage your listeners to act on, because part of this is how can we change our future and make more of Central Ohio able to participate in the economic progress that lies before us. Carla mentioned Link Us. That will be on the ballot next fall. It is a $9 billion transportation plan that Franklin County voters will be asked to support. I would encourage everybody to support that. It will be a sales tax. And when we say Link Us, what does that mean? It's going to link us with our feet. Link link us on bicycles and link us with transit. So it is bike lanes, it is bike paths, it is sidewalk connectivity, but it would be three bus rapid transit lines, one from downtown Columbus on West Broad Street out to Hollywood Casino, the other one on East Main out to Reynoldsburg from downtown, and the third one would be rebuilding Olin Tangy River Road. Real bus rapid transit, I mean, Cleveland Avenue's uh, route is kind of bus rapid transit light. Uh, bus rapid transit would be a two buses with that kind of accordion connector in between. There would be permanent stations. So when that bus pulls into a station, people have already made their financial transaction when they got onto the platform. So all four doors of the bus will open. People can exit all four doors. They can enter all four doors. So it'll have the efficiency of, say, a light rail or a subway, but it will be in the street on tires. That kind of fixed platform system also provides developers the um, uh, confidence that there is this physical infrastructure. And then with the zoning code update, we'll get higher density housing where people can choose to live where they don't have to have two cars. So Link Us is going to be very important. The other thing that um, Carly and United Way of Central Ohio have advocated for with great success would be source of income ordinances or SOI. In 
September of 2020 was the first Central Ohio community to pass that ordinance, and it simply states that landlords must include all legal sources of income to qualify that person for their housing. What do I mean by that? So social security, disability, veterans benefit, retirement, retirement, child support, um, where previously a landlord would only look at your earned income, say on a W-2, this is looking at those government supports. After Bexley showed leadership by uh, passing that ordinance, Mm -hmm. Columbus, Whitehall, Worthington, Westerville, and Gahanna have all followed suit. If you live, listeners, in Dublin or Arlington or Grandview, Hilliard, Grove City, I would encourage you to go to your city council uh, members and advocate and say, can we follow the leadership of Westerville and Whitehall and Worthington and Columbus? It might be the fastest way to get to a housing justice platform. In Columbus, we went a little bit further because of council member Shayla Favor, who also did the following. Landlords must give somebody a receipt when they pay their rent. So there's none of this, uh, I said, you said, when it comes to eviction court, right? You have to have a receipt. And then the other thing would be, if you think about this, given the high cost of apartments and security deposits, um, people must be given 90 days in order to uh, pay that uh, deposit because a lot of times you're waiting to get your deposit back on the old place and you need that revenue. So it's 90 days to pay the rent, you get a receipt and legal sources of income. We have to do housing policy while we're investing in uh, uh, transportation infrastructure and rewriting the zoning code and having advocacy organizations like what Carly runs to change policies and systems beyond central Ohio as well as leverage dollars to create a more robust housing ecosystem. Wow, okay, Carly? Yeah. Words of wisdom. <laughs> uh, you can't beat that. I, wa- I want to finish out on the high note. And it's that we absolutely can't do this. Mm-hmm. This isn't a crisis. This isn't a storm that hit the shore and now we're just cleaning up the damage. That's not where we are. We are standing on a cliff and it is a long way down. But we are going to decide whether we jump or whether we step back. And when Michael and I say things like, well, we need to build more housing to meet the growth that we are experiencing. We're not talking about something that we haven't done before. We're talking about going back to the 1970s and saying, remember what we did then? Let's try it again. Remember how we dealt with the population boom that came out of World War II? We've got this in our blood. Mm -hmm. We've just lost the practice. And it's absolutely entirely doable. And I am beyond confident that Central Ohio is going to be the first. And we're going to continue to be a leader on this. And other folks are going to continue to turn to us because we know how to do it. And we know how to do it fairly. Central Ohioans and and listeners, we we do have we've got the resources, we have the education, we have the motivation. It's just the the make the decision to support those in office and those in agencies like Carly's and like Michael's to to know that we are behind you in your efforts. Thank you both so much. This has been phenomenal, and yes, we would love to have you come back. Um, but many thanks, you know, to you and to your organizations 
for all that you do. Listeners, thank you for joining us, and do not forget to check out our show notes. We're going to have a two-page list of resources for anyone who has information or or concerns about housing, Um, anything that we've discussed today. You can find all that information on lookingforwardourway.com, and we're looking forward to hearing your feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes.